Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today our guest is Jamie Harrison, chair of the Democratic National Committee. Harrison was elected to the job just after the previous chair, Tom Perez, decided not to seek another term. And Harrison has got a lot on his plate. Like, how are Democrats going to hold their slim majority in the House when the census numbers make it look like they're going to lose seats? And does he think, like Democratic strategist James Carville, that the Democratic Party is, quote, too woke for most of America? Harrison has some choice words for me about the top Republican in the House, Kevin McCarthy, and three of those words are, quote, he's a joke. So we talk about all that and, of course, about Donald Trump. So here's my conversation with Jamie Harrison. Chairman Jamie Harrison, from your home in South Carolina to my home in Oakland, California, welcome to It's All Political. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Great. So uh, now, for, for many folks, you, you popped up on their radar, you know, maybe here in California, also other parts of the country when you ran for uh, Senate a couple years ago. Um, give us a quick... Uh, uh, backstory of yours, which is very compelling. Your mom had you when she was 16 in yeah. high school. Yeah. And she walk us from there to, for, to, how'd you get from there to Yale and a full scholarship? That's quite yeah. a journey. Yeah. Well, uh, again, my mom had me when she was young, 16 years old. Uh, she dropped out of high school and uh, we stayed with my grandparents who helped to take care of me. They had a fourth grade and an eighth grade education. Um, good people, hardworking folks. Uh, my grandma picked cotton. My grandfather paved roads, and um, and you know they did all that they could for me, and they made sure that the opportunities were there. So uh, I did well in school. I got a scholarship to Yale. Uh, then started uh, while I was at Yale, intern on Capitol Hill for Senator Hollins and uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn. Uh, then went to law school at Georgetown. And while I was at, at law school at Georgetown, Congressman Clyburn asked me to come and join his staff again. Uh, and that's really how I got back in, in into politics uh, as a congressional staffer. I became the uh, first African-American executive director of the House Dem Caucus. I ran the whip operation for Jim Clyburn. I then became chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. Uh, then... Uh, ran for U.S. Senate, and now I'm chair of the DNC. It's, it's a remarkable journey. Um, so I wanted to ask you, let's, let's talk about California uh, for a second. From your perspective, I wanted to get your take on, on, on what the heck happened here last year in the House races. You know, it's, we have a state where two-thirds of the voters voted for Joe Biden. There's a Democratic supermajority in the legislature. There hasn't been a Republican elected statewide since 2006. But the Democrats lost four House seats last year in, in, in swing areas. How did that happen? You know, I, I think we saw similar things that happened not only in California, but in New York. Uh, we even saw those things uh, happening in, across the South as well. And part of this, I believe, is the fact that Democrats 
because we were in the midst of a pandemic where we wanted to ensure the safety of not only the voters, but also the people who worked for us, made a, a conscientious decision not to put ground games, uh, 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 put together you know, the traditional ground game that, that we've had in the past, where you have people knocking on doors and interacting with folks. All the while, Republicans continue to do what they normally uh, do during those elections, knocking doors and, and the like. And I think that really hurt us, uh, even though we were doing the right thing for the right reason. It really hurt us at, at the ballot box. And uh, many of the races that we lost, we lost because of slight margins that could have been, uh, you know, with a strong field operation, uh, you really could have eclipsed. And so Joe Biden didn't see the coattails that we thought that, you know, getting 80 million votes uh, would have had. And partly, I, I do believe that's because of uh, not having uh, the traditional style field operation that we normally do. And it, you anticipate that coming back, of oh, course, yes. by the oh, time. Yes. Because we have learned that even in the midst of COVID, you can do it in a way uh, that, that is safe for both uh, the worker and the, and, and the voter. So you don't think the, the problem was anything on messaging or, or candidates or strategy? Well, well listen, you know, in any given uh, area, you know, a message here, a message there could have been off and therefore uh, things uh, could have been a little differently. But I really do believe is, is I start to look across the country at, you know, how do you do this in, in, you know, in California and in, in New York and North Carolina and South Carolina? The, the thing that is consistent is the fact that there was, were not uh, concerted uh, and the, the traditional field operations that we normally have. So let's talk about redistricting a little bit. Here in California, we're set to lose a House seat for the first time ever. Uh, the other day I was, ta- I was um, moderating this panel at UC Berkeley on redistricting. I'm fascinating listening. You know, and only nerds like us, I think, would really enjoy listening to something like this. But it was very interesting. And one of the, one of the gentlemen there is a, a demographer at the Public Policy Institute of California. And he, and he said that he expects that seat to be a Democratic seat. Um, do, do you, and if so, uh, what, what, do you, what plans, does that jive with what you're, what you're hearing about what may happen in California? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I'm not quite certain about that. Um, you know, in the end, we know California uh, has a commission that oversees his uh, um, uh, redistricting, um, and uh, I, and it's still very unclear yet about how that process will work out and whether or not it will be a net gain for, for the Democrats or a net or a net. Uh, negative for the Democrats. And so uh, I, I think we're just going to have to wait and see it on, on that front. Um, but it's not clear at this point. As, as you alluded to, California, the way we draw the lines here, I dare say is much more evolved than the rest of the country. We have an independent... <laughs> <laughs> As we have an independent commission. It's not like it used to be where uh, three guys, and it's always guys and usually white guys, go into a back room and, and, and draw the maps uh, on a couple of napkins. Um, but there are many states where that still happens and many yes. states are, many of those states are controlled by Republicans. Uh, how do you affect, do you expect, uh, redistricting to affect, uh, Democrats? They, you know, there's such a narrow majority in the house. Well, you know, redistricting is always a, a hang, hand wringing, uh, exercise. Uh, I think for, for both parties, you just don't know what to expect because now you, you have 50 different laboratories, uh, to come up with. 50 different ways of 
of drawing these districts. That's why I think HR1 and S1 is, uh, is so important because it would take, you know, when you think about it, politicians should not be able to choose the people who vote for them. It should be the people actually, and you, you all do it right in California. It should be the people who choose those folks who represent them. Uh, and so we need to move away from this. And I think the more we move away from the partisan gerrymandering, uh, the more that we will actually find more common ground, I believe, between the parties. I really do think uh, you know, gerrymandering and the, and the way we do redistricting in this country um, uh, has become a cancer to our democracy and is just really eating away at having uh, the middle ground in politics where people can come together on both sides and find some common ground to move forward. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that's why HR1 is even so, so important to, to get passed down the road because it, it tackles this issue of who should draw the districts. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think we need, we need that, that cure right now to our, poli- our to the body, body politic in general. Are you concerned uh, the way things stand now in the absence of HR1 uh that Democrats could be you know lose some seats? Well, I mean, listen, I know the Republicans are going to try their very best to gerrymander uh the Democrats out of seats and make it even much more difficult for Democrats to retain the majority, but we know that this happens every every t- 10 years. Um, but what we are going to do is, you know, my grandma always said, Jamie, control what you can control, right? Uh, I have no power to control redistricting as chair of the DNC, but I do have power as it relates to making sure that we have the best operation that we can going into the 2022 election. Uh, that's why we just announced that uh, we are putting $20 million, unprecedented amount. Uh, we're going to spend that this year. Uh, to make sure that we have uh, voter protection staff in several states, that we have organizing staff in, uh, in several states, that we put communication embeds into certain states so that we can begin to, to build a foundation that we need in order to compete in the 2022 elections. Um, so, you know, Republicans will do what they Republicans will do, right? They'll, they'll try to, uh, to get a majority one way or the other, but we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that our candidates and our state parties have the resources that they need in order to compete and to maintain our majorities uh, moving forward. Let's stay on that for a couple of seconds. The, um, we've seen what's been going on in Texas and Georgia the last couple of days, last couple of weeks. What are your concerns there? And is, uh, how much of those resources are going into those states where the, the laws are changing? They, uh, there's going to be very likely uh, more voter suppression in those states. Yes. And, and we have to call it what it is. It's Jim Crow 2.0, which is about suppressing the vote, particularly suppressing the vote and making it much more difficult for communities of color uh, and, and folks in some of our rural areas in, in order to exercise their rights. Uh, we are seeing and we've seen these attacks. Oh, not, it's just not this year, but we've seen it uh, consistently for the past few years where, you know, the, the massive voter purges, where if you don't turn in a postcard, uh, you know, they send you one postcard and you don't turn that in, then they wipe your name off of the voter rolls. Uh, we know how reliable the post service is these days under the Trump administration. So why, <laughs> why would you take somebody uh, uh, off of the voter rolls because they didn't turn back a postcard 
or we've seen the, the number of precincts reduced dramatically. You know, one of the things that we saw in Georgia recently was that they're criminalizing giving somebody a bottle of water. And somebody said, well, why is that a big deal? Well, the question is, why, why do people need a bottle of water in, in line? It's because they're standing in line for hours upon hours. Why are they standing in line for hours upon hours? It's because the Republicans in those states have dramatically reduced the number of precincts in those communities. In Georgia, in the last five years, they've reduced 200 precincts down. They've eliminated 200 precincts. Where are those precincts? In majority African-American uh, communities. And so it's making it systematically much more difficult for people to exercise their right. And in essence, you know, this is this is just a form of cheating. Uh, if the Republicans see that they can't win any other way, then they resort to changing the laws and make it much more difficult for people to exercise their right. And it's shameful because we sent our sons and daughters overseas to fight for democracy in other countries and the right to vote in other countries. All the while, Republicans do every damn thing that they can to make it much more difficult for people to vote in this country. And that is fundamentally not right. And we're going to fight against that in every way that we can, from the state houses to the courthouses to the houses of Congress. We're going to do everything that we can to push back against these efforts. We'll have more of my conversation with DNC Chair Jamie Harrison after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One more California question. We have uh, very likely going to have a recall election here. Um, Number one, are you concerned about that? The Newsom is uh, the last few polls have been very favorable to him. Uh, he's the the state budget is in good shape. What do you see the DNC's role in that? Uh, and and are you concerned about Newsom? Well, listen, I, in Democrats in California and across the country are united against this very very partisan Republican recall because that's what it is. It, it's uh, it's the dream of the Republican Party. It's the dream of Donald Trump and those. Uh, and his minions. But look at what Governor Newsom has done. As governor, he fights for that state every single day, uh, you know, from jobs to tackling this pandemic. And so we are, uh, we are united in supporting Governor Newsom, making sure that he can continue to do the work of the people of that great state. Um, said that we're going to see a waste of money and time, um, but Governor Newsom is going to win and continue his efforts. Uh, to making California uh, a tremendous state that, that is and serving all of her people. Is, is the DNC ready to chip in some cash? That's what it comes down to. Always. We're going to do all that we can for Governor Newsom to, to make sure that he's there. All right. So the other day, I want to talk to you about something that James Carville said. Now, James Carville, for those who don't remember, he was the uh, top strategist for Bill Clinton in his uh, 1992 uh, winning presidential race. And he said, quote, wokeness is a problem for the Democratic Party, and we all know it. He said, I think it's because large parts of the country view us, us being the Democratic Party, as an herbal, coastal, arrogant party, and a lot of that gets passed through the, that filter. Uh, he said that uh, that attitude is, is going to get Democrats beat in a lot of places. Does Carville have a point there? 
Well, well, one of the things I think we need to dispel, because one, I, I'm not quite sure people understand what wokeness is, right? <laughs> uh, but we we and, do in California. Yes. It, you know, folks in California, well, it's a term that it, it has come out of the African-American community about this uh, a heightened awareness about the issues and the uh, inequalities that we see in the systemic you know, racism and inequities that we see in society. So waking people up to the fact that these things are still very much there. I, I think uh, the Republicans have now taken this, and I think this is what James is responding to, uh, this terminology and tried to turn it into something that is uh, something else, right? The, the PC culture, right? The, the political, I think, I think what James is talking about is more political correctness as a, as opposed to exactly what being woke actually means. So let me tackle the issue of political correctness. It, it, uh, listen, ultimately, I think it's important for the Democratic Party to speak truth to power, to speak plainly so that everybody understands who we are, what we are, and who we're fighting for. And so sometimes all of this terminology gets too clunky. It gets too cute for, uh, uh, you know, you hear all kinds of stuff in the establishment, this or neoliberals, this and, you know, all kinds. Everyday people don't talk like that. Right. Uh, and so what we need to do is just make it plain that we are a party that believes in uh, equality for all, that everybody in this country, regardless of their background, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, who they love, how they love, who they pray to, should be able to live the American dream. And let's just keep it at that. What does living the American dream look like? Let's make sure people have health care. Let's make sure that people can get a good, solid education. Let's make sure that jobs are available and that the jobs that are available actually can pay people a living wage so that they can take care of their families and their friend, uh, their families. Those are the things that we have to be very simple about, very clear about, not getting caught up into, uh, you know, the one thing that James said was about faculty lounge talk. Yes. I agree. Let's stay away from faculty lounge talk and talk like the people in, in the barbershops, in the beauty, beauty shops. What's an example of faculty lounge talk that we should be avoiding? Oh, no. I, again, the, you know, the, all of this uh, establishment, this and corporatists and this. People don't talk like that. Just just focus on the issues that are important to everyday people. Go to the barbershop. If you if you want to know what regular people talk like, go to the barbershop. Now, right now in the midst of COVID, the barbershop may be empty. But yeah, generally go to listen, go in the barbershop, sit there for a while and listen to people talk or to the uh, beauty shops and listen to people talk. And and that's that's what we have to tap into as a Democratic Party. What is one of the, the, the more controversial phrases that uh, the Republicans use against Democrats is the phrase defund the police. Now, we know that that's a, a, a flawed term for what it actually is about. And, and Joe, we know that they were the ones that actually defund the police. Donald Trump's last budget reduced policing, community policing by four hundred million dollars, four hundred million dollars. But do they ever talk about that? No, they don't talk about that. Or the fact that, uh, you know, you had Republicans uh, when uh, we had the, the insurrection at the Capitol. These guys, they love to bring police officers in as props. Right. But then when the end of the day, it, they, they don't support efforts that, that need to be supported. There are some Capitol police officers who put their lives on the line to protect members of Congress. And some Republicans voted against giving them a congressional gold medal. For, for their actions on January 6th. So again, it's, it's, 
what my grandma always said, it's not about what you say, it's what you do. Uh, and in the end of the day, we find that the Republican Party is a party of hypocrites because their actions betray their words. Well, how would you talk about the concept of, of not defunding the police, but reallocating dollars that formerly went to policing in one way to another way? How would you how should Democrats talk about that? Because it is a, that's a common People generally agree yeah. on that, even police well, in some, in some well, cases. Well, listen, I, I think in the end of the day, and I talked about this a lot when I was running for the U.S. Senate, I mean, in the end of the day, we expect a lot of the police to do things that they're not trained to do. They're not trained to be social workers. They're not trained to be domestic violence uh, uh, you know, experts. They're not trained to do so much, that, but we still put it on their plates. And so I think what folks are saying is uh, uh, that why don't we make sure that we have the right professional there paired with the the law enforcement officer to address the issue that is at hand? What do you do when you come up with somebody that has a drug addiction and you're trying to handle it? What do you do with somebody that is dealing with some type of disability, a mental disability, and you're trying to take uh, handle that? Because if you're not trained to understand those situations, you can immediately see going to force and that force not being the thing that you need to go to at that point in time. And so uh, let's let's equip our police officers to do the things that they can do and so that they can do them well. But at the same time, we also know that there's some reforms that need to happen in policing. There's some bad apples right now that need to be rooted out. And those folks need to be out. We need to do a better job in terms of recruitment or better job in terms of training um, and a better job of making sure that if if you do certain things that are not right, that you don't you don't ever get another opportunity uh, to have that amount of power again over uh, uh, folks in our in our communities. Police officers are supposed to be there to protect and serve. That That's the job. And um, and uh, let's let's equip them so that they can do that job. But let's also make sure that we don't give that power to somebody who can't handle one uh, person who will not be on the ballot in 2022 will be Donald Trump, uh, which makes Democrats job. I, I dare say a little harder. You cannot run against him because he's not on the ballot. How does he change? How does his absence change the way you, you go about business or, or do you think it should go about? Uh, the, well, the Trump go about wasn't business? on the ballot in 18 either. Right. And and Democrats uh, really, but he was in office, and you could talk about him. Then. Yeah, well, well, we can still talk about Trump. I mean, he's still present. The, every Republican right now seems to be, uh, you know, bowing down to him at, at this point in time. So it's not like he's gone away. Um, and and he is threatening that he's going to run in twenty twenty four. So he's still an omnibus omnibus uh, presence in the uh, in the Republican Party. Uh, you know, even Kevin McCarthy has done backflips to say, uh, oh, my dearest Donald Trump, I'm so I'm so sorry that I talked badly about you uh, in regards to January 6th. You know, uh, please, will you forgive me? I I will say that you're the greatest person walking the face of the earth. I mean, it's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. Um, In the end of the day, what Democrats are going to do is talk about what we were able to accomplish on behalf of the American people. Because we were able to put money in pockets, uh, got vaccines in arms, people kept their jobs, got kids back in schools. And we did all of that without not one Republican who supported our efforts. And we're going to continue to work on uh, infrastructure. Uh, you know, uh, we have our American Jobs uh, 
plan. We have our American families plan. We're going to continue working on behalf of the American people dealing with the issues that they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis while we leave Kevin McCarthy to playing with his Mr. Potato Head dolls and reading Dr. Seuss. So, you know, that's, you know, and this is a guy who wants to be the Speaker of the House. Uh, and it's just shameful. It really is shameful. California, y'all do better. Don't, I mean, you actually get somebody who is going to do some work. Kevin McCarthy is a joke and uh, he should not have the Speaker's gout. And I'm going to do everything I can make sure that that nightmare never happens. Um, I want to just look back and talk about your Senate race against Lindsey Graham. Uh, Graham Speaking and, of other jokes, but anyway. <laughs> One of the most shameless flip-floppers of all time, talking about someone who who, who kissed uh, Trump's behind after after ripping him, uh, you know, at, at, when he was running against him. Uh, now, you, you raised records amounts of money, and it, we're still lost by, you know, eight, eight or ten points. What did you learn from that? And what can that help you? First of all, why that happened? And what did you learn from yeah. that that you can uh, tell other candidates now that you're yeah. sort of counseling them? Well, well, one of the things is that, you know, I really wish it, there are a number of factors that happened last minute. Um, so, you know, one of the things is the Supreme Court uh, nomination. That really fundamentally changed a lot of things for us, um, because then that allowed Lindsey Graham to take front and center. Uh, um uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, the agenda and the program. In addition to that, uh, you know, we didn't have the field operation that I wanted to have because of COVID uh, and weren't able to do the things that we really uh, wanted to do and needed to do. So um, in the end, uh, you know, there was a lot that I learned um, and we put 1.1 million uh, cracks in, the, in that red wall here in South Carolina. And we're not done yet. We're going to, uh, the new South is emerging, uh, and it's changing and, uh, you know, uh, we're going to continue to push forward and getting some real leadership down here because it's desperately needed. Chairman Harrison, thank you so much for your time. I look forward thank to talking you, to you over the next couple of years as, uh, we'll, as we'll see this, uh, this race, uh, unfold and, uh, good luck with the new gig. Thanks a lot. You take care of yourself. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Jamie Harrison for being on the podcast today. I'd like to thank the King Webby nominated King Kaufman for producing today's episode. And of course, a shout out to our fabulous theme music. That song is called Cattle Call and it's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. And remember, no matter if you think Kevin McCarthy is a loyal public servant or a joke, it's all political.